Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. This weekend, me and Joanne went down to the Camden waterfront, which Camden used to not be the best area in the country. It's one of the worst areas in the country, but they're, they're upgrading it. And we went to this, uh, the Battleship New Jersey had a happy hour on their deck, and it was great. But what's funny is as we were walking there, it was also, it's also right near the BT&T Pavilion, which has a lot of concerts. And Dead and Company was in town. And it's so funny because, you know, when I was growing up in college, I had a few deadheads in my dorm and they were all hippies. And now it's just to see how people change and age. I was sitting there, we were walking there, and all of a sudden we see, first of all, there's guys with deadhead shirts tucked in to their, like, khaki dockers pleated shorts. And the best thing about it was the amount of luxury vehicles. There was a ton of luxury vehicles out there. And you're thinking the dead, you know, back in the day, you had the misconception, oh, the dead and the buses. And now it's like all these BMWs, Mercedes and Lexuses. Anyway, we have a great show. We have a, we have an excellent, excellent guitarist that he travels around the road. He actually just did a gig with my good friend, uh, Rich Redmond in, in Cabo. My guest is Joel Hoekster. How you doing, Joel? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, no problem. So, um, what was it like? What was it like digging down in Cabo? I mean, I saw some of Rich's pictures. You're, you know, you're sitting there and you're on the beach and you're playing to this beautiful ocean. When you were a kid starting, I know you started on cello. You probably never did. You ever think it would come to this point where you're playing in Cabo? Uh, no. I mean, I think where I grew up kind of in a not-so-well-to-do uh, suburb of Chicago. You know, you're not really supposed to do anything like this for a living. So now I, I, I definitely feel blessed to be having all these experiences. Now, what made you get into music? I know your, your parents were musicians, I believe. Yeah, my parents are classical musicians. So it was always around the house as a kid. So, you know, they had me on cello when I was really little. I mean, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't proficient. I think I was just playing kids songs, you know, and I uh, played piano uh, at the age of seven for a bit. And so I, I grew up here listening to music every day because they were, they were always playing and, uh, you know, total all classical, no rock, you know, but then I, I saw ACDC and that got me good. Going on guitar at, at about the age of eleven. So you saw Lacey? Did you see him on TV on a video, or did you hear him, or how did you how did you get introduced? Yeah, to him? TV, yeah. It was like the the start of MTV. Remember when they only had about like eight videos? Right. So if you watched long enough, you'd see ACDC every forty five minutes. I think it was that. I forget what the video even was. It might have been for like uh, for those about to rock or something like that. It was like one where they played it live on a soundstage. It wasn't like a, it wasn't the studio version of the song, but I just remember looking at Angus going, that is the coolest dude in the world. I want to do that. So how do you go up to your parents and say, Hey, I want to play rock and roll when, you know, you were come from a classical background. I didn't say that. I just said, I wanted to play guitar. (laughs) (laughs) was my my uh, my trick, I guess. So uh, I said I wanted to play guitar, and I had to start up my stepmom's acoustic, which was not panning out the way I anticipated. You know, I uh, I they, they got me with a teacher who had me on the Alfred's uh, method book, you know, and I was learning the three notes on the high E string, and I was like, this suddenly feels a lot like learning piano, and it's not like I pictured. Like, <laughs> how do I get to be like the guy on MTV? And thankfully, I had a friend of mine who came over one day and he like knew all these rock songs and I went well how'd you learn that and he goes oh, I get this teacher over at this place you know and 
and he'll teach you any song you want to know. And so I switched over to him right away, and that was a great move. I mean, he was a great teacher, just showed me nothing but the songs I wanted to learn, and uh, and I was totally hooked, you know. What were some of the songs? Do you, do you even remember, like, some of the first songs you learned and wanted to learn that you heard and said, oh, man, I, I got to play that? Uh, first one was Paranoid. And then once I – the nice thing about having played music when I was young is once I learned a power chord, uh, my ear was good enough to find pitch and rhythm to a whole lot of my favorite songs at that point in time. So I was able to kind of go, oh, and that must be how this song goes, and that must be how this song goes. Once I learned that power chord, Record, everything changed so you're sitting there and how old are you at this age at this point i think i was 11 okay so so what are you thinking in in the long run are you thinking okay man this is what i want to do or did you have other interests or what started getting you on the you know started saying okay i gotta take this really really serious yeah it was never that i mean i was obsessed with it so it never really I never really had to make a career decision. I always tell people it just kind of that's what I did a whole lot of. And uh, I mean, the first time I started making money with it, I think I took on some students when I was a freshman in high school, and I would teach. Uh, I was teaching some other people in the school how to play guitar, and so that's when I began. It was really my first, you know, income in my life, and. I mean, I had some other jobs along the way in my lifetime, but I just basically, as soon as I got out of GIT uh, and I worked at, well, I worked a year at Cherokee Recording Studios in LA, but once I was back in Chicago and on my own, I just, I taught a lot of lessons and played whatever gigs I could. The, the teaching thing really helped me to kind of keep it afloat. I think it would have been extremely difficult to say I want all my income to be from gigs. Uh, and it, at least starting out, you know, it is obviously nowadays, but back then I had 70 students a week. And so I made oh, the majority cool. of my money that way. And then just sort of grew whatever gigging I could do out of that during that time. Now, G, you went to Guitar Institute in LA? Yeah, I went to GIT in Hollywood uh, in, I think it was 90, 91 or something like that. I was still very young. And did you, did she just decided to go back to, did you want to stay in LA or did you just say, I'm not ready for this or what made you gravitate back to Chicago? Uh, I was, well, I was working at Cherokee making like minimum wage. I wasn't playing guitar for a living, which is what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be on guitar all the time. And, um, you know, things that it got, it got weird out there. It was the Rodney King riots back back then and I got mugged like not too long after that and I think I was just kind of like you know I think that's that's about enough <laughs> of LA for right now I could just go back to Chicago and teach lessons and uh you know figure it out and I can always come back out here was always my thought how did you accumulate 70 that just sounds like so many lessons 70 a week and then how do you prepare for that because they have to be all different levels did you, did you just sit them and you're a young guy did you just sit them down and say we're gonna learn this i mean 70 were, were they they were all solo lessons or was it your groups yeah it was all one-on-one -on -one and then half hour lessons so you know you're talking 35 hours of work a, a week which isn't anything that normal people aren't doing anyway so um yeah, it was nothing special. I just transcribed songs for people or taught them whatever they wanted to know, but also tried to teach them. I sort of developed a method for getting people on top of everything at one time if they stayed with me. I had a couple that stayed with me the, the whole time I did that there, that you know, about seven years or so, uh, um, that turned out to play guitar really well and be in bands and stuff like that. And so, um, 
yeah, you know, I, I hey, it was just a, I did I did what I had to do to make a living, but I kept kept my hands on the guitar all day. I kept me working on it, and uh, I definitely don't regret that. I, that's definitely the most positive way to go. I mean, there's the the two schools, right? It's like you can use your guitar for the income as well, or you can say I'm going to do something else and only play what I want on guitar, only work on my own music. And in my experience, what happens is most people that take that route, you know, that say, well, I'm going to sell insurance on the side or real estate, but um, I'm, I'm going to play guitar and go after my dream. They usually just end up going with the other one. As soon as there's an, uh, an option B in their life, that's usually the one that ends up happening because music is so extremely difficult to make it happen. So you're, you're giving these lessons and you're still playing and you're, and you're working on your craft still. When do you decide to sit there? When do you start breaking it out as a musician getting hired or with bands? Did you start a band or did you play for a band or what started sitting there where you could get away from the lessons? Uh, well, I had my own bands right away back in the Chicago area. So this is like when I was probably 21 years old and, you know, we were playing my original tunes and or our original tunes in some cases and covers. And we played play a bar like, you know, on the weekends, maybe, maybe every couple weeks. It wasn't like very regular. It was every like week or two, there would be like a gig. It wasn't that great. And then, uh, uh, things gradually picked up in that department. I, I hooked up with uh, a girl, Kathy Richardson, there, who um, nowadays she sings for uh, Jefferson Airplane, or Jefferson Starship, rather. Sorry. Uh, sorry, Kathy. But she, uh, uh, she she was gigging regularly with her own material and maybe some covers sprinkled in. But she, you know, she had a, a situation where a lot of people were coming to the shows, and she was playing pretty much every weekend in the Chicago area. So I did that. Uh, uh, and that sort of led me to working with Jim Peterick, who uh, founded the Ides of March and Survivor and wrote a bunch of hit songs. He was sort of like the, you know, the big uh, classic rock songwriter guru guy in my area where I grew up. And so getting to meet him and work with him a little bit, that eventually led to things as well. I didn't work with him on a regular basis, but I'd do sessions and play his world stage events uh, once or twice a year, and uh, that eventually led to the Night Ranger thing for me, even though by then I lived in New York. Um, but it was it just uh, all that stuff really in the Chicago area, that's when it really picked up for me, it was playing with Kathy Richardson, and uh, she got the role of Janis Joplin in a show called Love Janis, okay. and, and, and when that was to New York, I was hired as the guitar player for it, and so that really, that was the first time I was no longer teaching any lessons and only playing gigs. What was that like? I mean, you, you get up, you go to New York, which is great, and then you're sitting there, and as you said, you're not teaching lessons, and you're just playing gigs, so you're, I'm guessing your workload maybe changed a little bit, because I don't know how many nights it was, but I know, you know, a lot of shows go every night, and then they sit there, and in the day, I don't know if you rehearse that much after your, the show starts running, but was that, for you, a really valuable experience in growing as a guitarist that you could get on stage every night? Yeah, it was eight shows a week, so that was the first time I kind of uh, really honed in on, like, wow, you're going to play the same thing for eight shows a week for a couple of years. And so, you know, you find different things out by just changing uh, little things and trying trying different things. And uh, I was really into, back then, having a... a a warm-up schedule that was significant. I think, you know, each show I would try and warm up for about an hour before and practice different stuff. So, 
I was I was still practicing really hard at that time, and um, you know when you when you're gigging those two shows in a day plus doing the two hours of warm up, that's a lot. You know you've played guitar for five or six hours that day or whatever, and um, <clears throat> I was definitely definitely on my guitar quite a bit uh, in that that time period. So that was good for me, and it was good for me to to get away from the teaching thing for a minute and just uh, work on just being a pro for performing. Now you said how how did Night Ranger come about? Yeah, so during that time I was in New York, but Jim Peter would still have his World Stage events back in Chicago, and that was an, those are really long epic shows Jim would have. He'd have his all his friends come out and sing you know three or four songs. So uh, it it was not unusual to have those shows be thirty songs long, and I would still learn it in New York and then fly in on no rehearsal and play the show in Chicago. So I would see all his friends there. And one of them was Kelly Kagey, who, uh, the drummer for night Ranger who would do that pretty much every year. And I, so he knew I was the type of guy who could come in and learn songs on no rehearsal and play a show. And one year I came in and, was talking with him and his his wife at the time, Monique, and they said that Jeff Watson was no longer with the band. And I was like, "Well, hey, what's the deal? I want to do that. I want to I want to join Night Ranger." And uh, um, <laughs> so uh, he said, "Well, Red Beach is kind of doing it for now, but he, we're going to need to find somebody because he's got to go back to Whitesnake. So we'll we'll figure it out." And I said, "Well, call me, please. You know, call me. I want a shot at it." And turns out, like a week later. Reb told them he needed to miss a show because he was going to play with Winger. And so I think that they were kind of looking at, well, do we cancel this show? What do we do? And Kelly said to the guys, well, I know this guy who wants to do this and he can learn all these songs on no rehearsal and come in and play a showdown. And they were like, well, okay, I guess if, <laughs> if you look at it like that, because they were in Japan with Reb, I think just before it, and there was going to be no time to rehearse. So basically, I learned, I think it was 25 Night Ranger songs, and I went and did a show with them, really on no rehearsal and a very limited sound check. So it was very nerve-wracking, but that was essentially my audition for Night Ranger. It went really well, and that's eventually what led to me getting the gig. What is your feeling when you hit the stage? Because as you said, you know, you've been doing the, the one the show in New York, but this is a band, and you know, Night Ranger is a great band. And you know, what is your feeling as... All of a sudden, because it was so thrown together very quickly, so you probably didn't have time to overanalyze it, which a lot of us always do. What was your feeling when you hit that stage, and where was the show at? Uh, it was a casino in Michigan, and I forget the city offhand. So it was just a casino gig, but unfortunately that meant a long set because it was, I believe, a headlining show. So I think it was a 90-minute set. So that meant learning a lot of songs. Uh, no, I mean, it felt great. It felt great. It was definitely a great experience for me uh, to get out with those guys. And that was a whole other level of learning uh, to be a pro and kind of be a, a focal point in a band, not just playing in like a, a theater show or playing with other bands where I wasn't as much of a focal point. This was like, you know, you really needed to uh, pull your weight. Uh, in Night Ranger, the solos were kind of just split exactly the way they were when Jeff Watson was in the band. So, I mean, I was playing the half of the solos, essentially. And uh, the way the, the stage is set up with Night Ranger, with Kelly being off to the side, that leaves a whole 
area for you to kind of entertain people and um, Jack and Brad are both very animated performers so that really upped my game in that department as well now how did they ask you to join the band like you had the audition then was it something where it was you knew when you got off that they were going to hire you well they They'd given Reb some, yeah, they thought it went really well, and they had given Reb dates already for uh, the rest of the year, so I think they kind of just let him play those out, and I was just kind of kept on ice, essentially, until that, that went through, and then the next year was really when I was hired to do the next shows and begin full-time, so they had they kind of made the decision off of that show to hire me, but they just kind of like let the, the year with Reb run its course, and then um, the next year I started up right away, I think it was February or something like that. I started with them. Might have been January, but we started right away. Now, how do you get used to that, being on the road? Because it seems like you weren't on the road a lot before, and also this is a band that has a big following, so it's not like, you know, you talk to some musicians who went on the road and they're sitting there in an old van with five of them. You know, you're going in with a respected band that's very popular. What's it like for you to hit the road for the first time? I mean, pretty much, I mean, for a long tour. And where did where are some of the interesting places you went to? Yeah, I mean, Night Ranger was a whole lot of fly dates, honestly. There was the majority of what I did with them was that. There was a couple short tours with Styx and REO, and there was 2011 when we had a long tour with Journey, but essentially um, Night Ranger did a lot of weekends. Uh, So it really wasn't that much different in terms of that than what I'd been doing, because I kind of, during the time of Love Janice, and shortly thereafter, it kind of come up through the oldie scene. Like their music director uh, was the guitar player in Big Brother and the Holding Company, and they would hire a second guitar player for shows. So I did work with the, that band, with Big Brother and the Holding Company, and I also began subbing and was uh, eventually hired full time in the Turtles. So you know the song "Happy Together." Right, I was right. playing, going and doing Weekend Warrior. You know, you take do a fly date with them, or I even did a little tour with the Turtles at one point uh, called Hippie Fest. Um, so I'd been out on the road, and that was stuff like that was valuable. Uh, people are always like, "You were the guitar player in the Turtles, you know," and I, I was even the bass player for a bit. But that stuff w- was great because it teaches you to uh, all the other stuff. You know, it's like I'm not just sitting at home working on my chops for YouTube, which wasn't even really around at the time. But I guess my point is, as it teaches you to be a valuable commodity without leaning on chops or just like look at how fast i can play or you know check out how proficient i am it's like you have to find a way to be able to sing backgrounds and understand the responsibility of touring and what's that you know what it's what it's all like and mark and howard in particular with the turtles were great for that i mean if you were late for a lobby call which i never was but they would just leave guys if you if you needed to get to the airport that next morning and the lobby call was at 9 a.m. or whatever, if you came down at 9.05, they were gone already. They didn't wait five minutes for you, you know. So that's a, a big difference from, like, you know, the local band vibe where you kind of stroll in whenever you want. And, um, <clears throat> you know, luckily for me, I've always been kind of responsible in that department. And that, that's a big part of just getting ahead. Is I, I always tell that to young players. It's, it's a lot of it is just being uh, – being responsible, being able to be a team player, <clears throat> and and working really hard. Like the thing about me learning all the songs uh, and going in on no rehearsal, that just requires a lot of work at home. Like you have to be disciplined and put in that work, and that's still kind of what gets me ahead a lot of times when people are like, well, you got lucky. It's like, well, not really. I mean, it's like hard work, and it's step-by-step of me doing these crazy things, and subbing for people and filling in and staying constantly busy has always been what's led to my other stuff. 
Now, where do you think you learned that work ethic? Was it from growing up in the Midwest? Because I, I grew up back east and when I lived in LA for all those years. You see a difference in work ethic. And it's just something about being late, being on time. You know, in LA, people will just sit there. They show up late and it's no big deal. In New Jersey, even if you had a little summer job, if you were late once, you get yelled at. If you were late twice, you got fired. Where did you do this? Because you think your parents were professional musicians and they had to be on time. Where do you think you got that work ethic? It seems like it's really helped you consistently work and be very respected in the biz. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Just my parents being hard workers and um, also having just a, they set the bar really high as far as musical skill level and things like that. So uh, I think that that's always in the back of my mind, even today, you know, just prepping for a gig. It's like, well, I, I don't aim to just get through it. I aim to be great on it. You know, I mean, I just don't see the point in doing a, doing a gig if it's just going to be like half-ass i just I, I actually don't enjoy it when it's half-ass it, it really bothers me now what happened with the night ranger did they stop touring or did you just leave or how did what happened with that uh well that was really just more about me getting the the white snake gig and then those two were going to conflict so um at that time i mean there was a lot happening in between there that we've kind of glossed over but me playing with Rock of Ages uh, nonstop here in New York. Uh, during that time period, I was in Night Ranger and in the, the winters touring with Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So I was kind of juggling those three gigs and uh, had done really those same three things for about six, seven years. And uh, the, the White Snake opening for me was like, all right, it's an opportunity to, to step into a band where there's been some amazing guitar players, great history of amazing players that have been through that band. Um, and also get out a bit more internationally. Uh, White Snake does quite a bit more in Europe and, and South America and things like that, places like that. So uh, that was a big thing for me and something very cool. Uh, so it was that was an opportunity that I wanted to take, and uh, and that was basically the the reasoning there. But you know, I, I totally value my time with Night Ranger. I learned a lot from those guys, and they're great guys. Brad Gillis and I are always still texting and talking and still one of my best friends so now the rock of ages how did that come about and did you think it would end up being just blowing up how huge it was i mean when did you join that production and, and how did it come about was it because you had had you know experience playing in the janice show or what what brought what brought you to that production Yes, so I have a friend that lives a couple blocks from me here in New York City, uh, J.J. McGeehan, who's uh, a pit musician, pit guitar player, so he does all the Broadway shows here in New York, and somehow a mutual friend, one day we were together, and he said, have you ever considered subbing on shows? You, you, you'd be good at it, and I was like, man, I haven't really read a lot of music on what I've been doing, I mean, I, I read, you know, but it, it's... I always thought Broadway, it was like they throw 300 pages in front of you, you have to sight read it. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. Um, but he was like, no, 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 you know, I'll get you audio of me playing it. And you take take two, three weeks to learn it. And uh, so I, I ended up subbing for him on whatever show he would get. So he'd get a show, I'd learn the book. And, and that for me was more or less just an opportunity to work on my reading skills again and stay busy and kind of stay out there. And also living in New York, I thought someday I'll probably want to do that full time because it's a decent paying gig. And, uh, well, you know, it just sounded like something that I should be at least working on. So what happened is through subbing for him on the show Tarzan, uh, I ended up getting the Rock of Ages thing because the keyboard 
player for that show became the music supervisor. When when Rock of Ages was coming to New York, they made him the music supervisor, and he said, "Oh, I remember this guy subbing at Tarzan, who was kind of a, a rock guy, so he'd be perfect." And when he looked me up, he was like, "Oh, wow!" And now he's playing with Night Ranger. That's perfect. Their song is in the show, and, and this is a perfect fit. So, uh, but it, it was oddly enough through me playing subbing in pit in in the pit that led to me getting Rock of Ages more than being a Night Ranger. Now, how did you perform in Rock of Ages? There was no pit. I've never seen the play. Did you play on stage? Were you? I mean, how did it work for you? And was it? Um, and what was it like to be on Broadway? I mean, that's like you think it's a very random way to end up on Broadway, but it's really cool. Yeah, so, the, the, well, the band was on stage, and, I mean, I had speaking lines in the show and some choreography where, you know, you kind of even fight with an actor during a scene, and the show would open with me doing an eight-finger solo and end with me kind of doing an Angus Young type of shtick where I rolled around on the floor and all that stuff and jumped off of, of the bar, essentially, to end the show. And so it was really great, once again, just to get an opportunity to perform regularly. That's a huge thing, and then... Uh, it started off Broadway, moved to Broadway, and switched theaters at some point. But essentially, it ran for over six years. And um, the main thing that was so great about that is that you you could sub out whenever you needed to. It was a union-protected job, and you could sub out whenever you needed to to do other stuff. So it wasn't like because I got Rock of Ages, I had to quit Night Ranger or, uh, or turn down Trans-Siberian Orchestra once I got offered that job. It was easy for me at Rock of Ages to say... I need these two months off. It was just my responsibility with my subs to schedule them and check in with them and make sure everything kept running smoothly. Uh, but that was really, really fantastic because what that did is it basically gave me a gig every day for about six and a half years because I'd come home from tour and bam, the next day I was into the show. How great, that must have been great for you just because you you were not having to go, I mean, I know the road's great, but it must have been great just to sit there and go, wow, I'm sleeping in my own bed tonight, and I'm going to sleep in my own bed for the next few weeks, and this is pretty damn cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think all gigs have their pros and cons, you know, and uh, like I said, I, when I fo focus on the, the pros, that it's like the fact that I could keep other stuff going during that was huge. So it changed my financial reality really during that time. I kind of went from dude who was struggling a bit to guy who was like, all right, you know, doing doing pretty well by the end of that run. Uh, so that that really helped a lot, quite frankly, in that department. And uh, uh, I think just getting to play the guys in the band are good players. Everybody kind of had another main band type of gig, so we played the music well. And getting an opportunity to play with good musicians and play music I like during that time, those would be the positives. Now, did, um, okay. so yeah, there was there was a lot to look at in terms of good stuff happening with that. Now, did a lot of celebrities come by and say hi to you? Because it seems like that whenever there's a big Broadway show, a lot of people go see it. Was that something that did you start meeting different people that you were like, "Hey, this is pretty cool. I just met such and such." Oh, a ton! Yeah, it was insane. Huge list. Who were some of the people you were like, "Wow, I can't believe I met this person." Uh. Well, I mean, it goes on and on. I hate to be, you know, just, I mean, there was a big, you know, Vince Vaughn and Michael Keaton in terms of uh, Hugh Jackman, in terms of actors. And, um, you know, there was a, a long, long list of celebrities. You know, Paris Hilton came to the show. Um, Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez came together one night. There was always something happening. All the guys from the bands came. So the guys from the original bands, and that was always really 
the most fun for me, you know, getting to play the journey stuff for Neil Sean and, and Ross Valerie and those guys, you know, I mean, that was a, a blast. Anybody that came by, uh, it, it led to a lot of things, you know, Dee Snyder was in the show for a bit. So, um, Dee's manager, Phil Carson also managed foreigner during that time. And then that really led to when Night Ranger was out with Foreigner and Journey in 2011 and Mick Jones got sick. That led to me getting the call because Phil had seen me play a couple Foreigner songs in the show. Sometimes it's that simple, you know. And so I got to fill in for Mick in 2011 uh, for a bit on that tour. And uh, it, But in terms of the celebrities and stuff, it goes on and on. It was it was amazing for that. There was a, just a boatload of, of famous people that came through. Now, you said you also played for Trans uh, Siberian Orchestra. How did that come about? And that's such a, a difference from the movie you were playing because that's very holiday-spirited, and it's it's great. I mean, everyone knows that band. How did that job come about, and then was it hard to learn their music? Uh, so, yeah, the way that worked is Alex Skolnick had been doing it for a while. I, I, maybe I forget how long Alex did it, but quite some time eight, ten years, something like that, and Alex wanted to take a year off to tour with his trio, and they needed someone to come in, you know, maybe as a fill-in, or maybe as the guy to do it from then on, you know, uh, I had a couple people in the band recommend me, and I auditioned one time with Al Petrelli, and another time down in Tampa with Paul O'Neill and Al Petrelli, and then I was offered the job, uh, so I auditioned just like everybody else, even though your, your name gets thrown in the hat there. They're, they're very specific about what they like and what they want the show to be like. Uh, so thankfully, I was, I was offered that job. Uh, great experience. Uh, still proud to be a part of it uh, to date. Uh, oh, in terms of learning the music, I'm sorry, I didn't answer that part of the question. It was hard because they gave me, first the management said, we want you to learn all the original versions of, of these songs. And they gave me a a huge list of songs, and then they said, now we're going to give you a West Coast version of the show, because there's two touring companies kind of out simultaneously, even though we're one big band, there's a, a West tour and an East tour, so they gave me a West show to learn, and then they finally gave me an East show to learn, which is what I was going to be doing, just so I had perspective on all three, but I kind of felt like I hit the first rehearsal having learned three different versions of a whole lot of songs, so my head was spinning a bit, but... Uh, it, it was good for me in the end, and uh, I, I managed to hang in there. Now, are, are you a big Christmas guy? Did, did you did you like it? Was it cool? Because it, it I mean, the shows must be so spirited because everyone comes at the holidays and they leave, you know, in a good mood. I mean, what was that like? It definitely leads to a unique feeling. I mean, you're you tour with these guys year after year during that time. So essentially, a lot most of the time you're not home for Christmas. So you end up spending Thanksgiving and Christmas with these people that you you tour with. So you do get kind of a family vibe going, and it's odd because you only see each other two months out of the year. So for ten months of the year you don't see each other, but then you've got this extended holiday family that you see and uh, spend a lot of time with, and that includes the fans. You know, they've got a real dedicated fan base of people that you see and there's a there's a signing line every night so you're kind of real hands-on with the fans on that gig uh, more so than being in a normal band where it's only a paid meet and greet essentially um so you know i've kind of become friends with a lot of the quote-unquote fans as well and that they, they kind of feel like family to me too and what's part of the experience that you do there every year so uh, oddly enough, I wouldn't say it's like a Christmas thing, but it just kind of feels like an extended family thing that happens two months out of the year for me. 
now you're playing with all these different projects and you know great bands and you know you're doing great you said then white snake came about how did the white snake gig come about it was that a long process and you said you know had had so many great guitars so you're sitting there going you know once again they're a legendary band how do you handle that when it's like you know you can come into this band and they're they're very known and you know it's going to be as you said huger tours how did that come about uh well uh, doug aldrich kind of i think just had a lot going on and decided to leave the band basically so i i was i think i saw it on twitter first after doug left i woke up uh seeing you know wouldn't joel hoekster be a good replacement um somebody suggesting me to eddie trunk i think eddie trunk was tweeting about it or something and uh so i i put out some feelers to reb because i knew him from uh, coming into Night Ranger, we had met at that time and sent him some video links and things like that to pass along to David. I wrote the tour manager and the manager. I had some mutual friends who gave me their contact info um, just to say if there's going to be an audition, I'd like to have a crack and uh, give it a go. And I didn't hear anything for a bit. And I think, you know, that's a tough thing to send somebody video clips. They wanted to really be specific and uh, in my experience, you know, so sending in pre-existing clips of me playing with Night Ranger, playing with Jeff Scott Soto is hard for uh, David to visualize. But I think at that time I didn't hear anything. and I thought, you know, I really just want to crack at this. It's crazy that I wouldn't get an audition. I at least deserve that. So I thought, who would know David? And I thought of Phil Carson, who I mentioned earlier, who uh, managed Dee Snyder and Foreigner. And I thought, Phil, I'm sure, knows David. And Phil uh, ended up writing an email to David, I think, just as he was coming out of meditation, you know, it was like, ding, and there was an email about, you know, you really need to check this guy out. So David, uh, I think, went a little deeper and watched more video of me on YouTube and then uh, found a bunch of cool stuff. They thought, yeah, this this might be the guy, and then uh, had me out. We ate dinner, and I played on some of the pre-production for the Purple album, basically, as my audition, and we sang a little, and everything went well, and, and I got the gig. Now, what is that like when you get on this tour? And I know I talked to Rudy Sarzo, who said it was very different with the, you know, when he went from uh, White Snake to Bloister Cult, because, you know, White Snake, it's a very, you know, very theatrical production. He said, you know, there's a lot of smart fire and stuff like that. What is that like? Was that easy to go in something like that to the bigger venue because you had done Rock of Ages and you had actual, like, theater? I mean, you had theater background. What was it like transitioning into a band that you know? the places are going to be packed with fans who are just crazy. Uh, uh, yeah, just kind of a hybrid of, of all the things I had done, actually. I mean, because T TSO is uh, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. You know, you're playing for huge audiences, so that acclimates you to that. And you have to be visually interesting on that gig. So that comes from there as well. Um, the Rock of Ages thing in terms of... Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe elements of it. I was My stage presence was a little campier with Rock of Ages because it was a little bit more of a tourist thing and a funny show. So, uh, um, you know, it was a little bit more of me throwing the devil horns and things like that to people in the crowd. You know, to, to, they were there to have fun. They were there to drink and have a good time. It wasn't uh, to hear songs that they've loved for 30 years and see a band that they've followed for 30 years. It, it, everything is a little different in terms of the way you approach it. Um but the Night Ranger thing definitely helped because, I mean, that's the real world thing and um, playing with a band. And that's very much what touring with Whitesnake was like. And 
um, getting along with everybody and understanding the way everything you know works in terms of the crew and uh, just being a professional. So all that stuff kind of came together, and, and so far so good. Now, where did some when you started touring with Whitesnake? Had you been overseas a lot to tour, or was this the first time you started going overseas? And what were the crowds like over there? I've been to London a couple times with uh, with Night Ranger, but the and one and one little run through Europe in that 2011 tour that we did with Journey and Foreigner and Kansas was on that as well. Uh, and I'd been to Japan a couple times, so I mean we'd travel, just not as extensively as uh, White Snake does through Europe. And um, so that was a great experience. There was a whole lot of new fans and people for me to meet, and, and again, that was a big part of what made the gig attractive to me is just kind of branching out a little bit. Um, I, you know, the Night Ranger thing was so great, but we would repeat a lot of the destinations and venues year to year in the U.S., and um, it was a lot of the same fan who came time after time so um it was a definitely an eye-opener in terms of like well here's a whole new group of dedicated fans and people that are um interested now in in what i do and how i play guitar now when you would with white snake when with white snake did you guys go to japan yeah we've been to japan a couple times last year we headlined the loud park festival so again all that stuff is just a little bit a little bit bigger and a little bit of a different network of um uh, people that you're you're hanging with, and just a great experience. I mean, not not to degrade anything I did with Night Ranger during that time, because it was all for me. That was huge. I mean, like I said, I'm coming from these, this background where you're not supposed to get out of your local town. So, you know, I was blessed to be that far. You know, and uh, but some of the stuff with White Snake, you know, headlining the big festivals and you know, playing Vakken last year late and being out in front for 90,000 people and having a guitar solo that's just you on stage during that time. And I mean, those are amazing experiences in my life that I can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say I don't appreciate because I do. It's like, that's a, that's an amazing thing to have the stage for a few minutes in front of 90,000 people with David Coverdale telling you, play whatever you want, just do your thing. So, uh, you know, I'm very, very grateful to David for all that, too. He's, he's really uh, very generous when it comes to uh, showcasing his players. Now, what goes through your body when they're in front of 90,000 people playing a solo? Is there just an energy that, I mean, it seems like it would possibly knock you on your ass. I mean, to be honest, you're sitting there, people are cheering. I mean, how do you contain just not bursting into a, a big smile going, holy crap, life is, life is great? Uh, well, I do burst into a big smile. I mean, that's why I get all the time that people say, you're always smiling on stage. You're always smiling. You look like you're having the time of your life. And it's like, yeah, I am. I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be the guy who like had to get another type of job because, you know, you, you can never live out your dreams. So I don't know. I'm, I've, I've been at this long enough and have, have seen it grow through all these, what I always say are smaller breaks. Cause it's not like I went from my bedroom to white snake or, uh, it, it's just been a lot of stepping stones and a lot of work to get to where I've gotten. So I, I just appreciate all of it and the opportunity to play. Now you've, you've played with these different bands and you know, you constantly play, but you've also done some solo work. How did you decide to get into the solo work and what was that like? Because it's, that's all on you now. Uh, yeah. So the solo albums were kind of, uh, 
my one of my early teachers was this guy tj helmerick who's a really proficient guitar player and he kind of partnered up with this guy brett garcet who's an amazing guitar player uh to make some cool fusion albums uh kind of right around the early 90s uh and i would go out to la and anytime i'd be out in la for anything i i hang with tj and uh, he was always like, man, you need to make a solo album. You know, I've got the rhythm section. I He works at, at MI, which is where, where GIT was, the guitar school I went to. Musicians Institute is the full school. And he was teaching recording there. He goes, I have free time. I can record the drummer and, and bass player for you there if you give them what to record to. And, and I can mix the album for you. And so he was always giving me a pep talk in that department. So... I, one time I was out there, they were doing a show with uh, Virgil Donati, who's you know, like an insane drummer. I mean, just like one of the greatest on the, the face of the earth, if not the greatest. And um, met Virgil and this bass player, Rick Fiorabracci, who is also a just complete virtuoso. And, and both of those guys, I filled in for Brett at Soundcheck. And I think I maybe jammed with them a bit at a rehearsal, too. But they were like, hey, if you ever have anything you, you need us to play on, let me know. And I thought, you know, I really do need to do this. This makes a lot of sense in terms of, at that time, I was playing with Kathy Richardson in Chicago, and I thought, wow, it's like, you know, these guys in L.A., and they're touring around with all these people, and I need to do this. So I gave them ideas from what I was working on at the time, uh, which was varied. The first album was like, I, I had been doing a residency with an acid jazz band at a bar in Chicago once a week, and so some of that stuff is stuff that I wrote for that that's on there, and some of it, like one song is with Kathy singing a fun uh, blues song and other stuff. I just kind of wrote some instrumentals. But I just gave those guys scratch tracks. TJ recorded Virgil out in L.A. And then which drums in the main live room. That's a that's a big thing in terms of getting an album to sound good. Uh, and then everybody did their stuff and mixed it. And so that first album, Undefined, I think I put out right at the time I was going out to do Love Janice. So right about 2001. So I kind of felt like I was hitting the next level, having a, a solo album that I put out on my own and going out to just perform. That definitely felt a little bigger than uh, teaching guitar lessons and playing with Kathy on the weekends in Chicago. Uh so definitely falling a step up, and then after, at the end of Love, Janice, when that closed, I recorded The Moon is Falling, which, again, was with Virgil and Rick, and is a little more progressive-minded. And then I wasn't focusing on that a lot more, on doing gigs and writing songs with people, but I was, for whatever reason, noodling with my guitar a lot and writing on acoustic, kind of these simple chord melody things that I was playing at home, and I decided to turn it into an album, and that was my 13 acoustic songs, um, in 2007, so that was that one was less about me showing off on guitar and more about um, just kind of catchy little tunes that people can put on when they drink coffee or, or you know are mellowing out. It's almost easy listening in a way, but not it's not smooth jazz, but it's just kind of like really mellow tunes. Now, how did you go and oh, then? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just say, how did you go about writing those songs? Because I just said you come from a rock, you know, the the you're playing, you know, I mean, if you're across the board but the catchier tunes is it hard to write when it's just saying okay you know i want to do this i want to do this light i mean how do you how did you come how did you write those songs was it easy or you just pick up the guitar start playing and go hey this would be a good song and expand on that that's just what i was writing i mean i was writing a lot with local people here in new york staying busy and writing a lot of pop tunes and stuff like that and it that that was actually that whole album is just literally what i was practicing at home on my couch 
where you sit around and you play guitar and just to play, not to, there was no purpose with any of it. But I had a lot of those songs and I was like, you know, I should just lay these down. This could be an album because it's, uh, and it, and it happened in a very natural way. And it's a weird album because I didn't, I, I didn't really put it down with any kind of, wow, well, I'm going to blow people's minds or impress them or play complex music. Or um, I kind of felt like I did that with The Moon is Falling in terms of being progressive and being out there. And um, uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, progressive, I guess. You know, less about like trying to write a hit song. There's nothing on The Moon is Falling that would be considered commercial. Um, so I felt like I was represented pretty well in that department. And, I guess the acoustic stuff was just the opposite. I just thought, just make it like what I what I want to hear, simple melody stuff and what I'm practicing at home. And then, you know, it, after that, that's really when I got the Night Ranger gig, and then everything kind of changed where I became known as the uh, this rock guitar player. So, so uh, in 2015, I finally released one that was like a rock album that I gave a side project name to, Joel Hoekstra's 13, and I hope to do another one of those yet someday. But I just basically asked my favorite classic rock guys if they would do it. So Vinnie Apice on drums and Tony Franklin on bass and two amazing singers and Jeff Scott Soto and Russell Allen and Derek Sherinian did the keyboards on it for me. So uh, that was a little bit more of me wanting to show people that I could write rock songs. You know, I had these instrumental albums out. And so, you know, as, as the world seems to go, whatever you're doing, somebody's always saying you can't do this. But I mean, I was writing for my rock band since I was 14, 15 years old, my very first band and in Chicago, I mean, I've been writing rock songs my whole life. So um, I wanted to get that album out just for that, to write some write some cool rock songs and, and get something out that's in the, the genre that I'm known for. Now, do you write do you write the music and the lyrics? With that particular album, I wrote everything. I wrote the vocal melodies, the lyrics, and all the music. So I it was as much as you can have it be a part of. Uh, I, and while I was making it, I wasn't sure if it was going to be a band or it felt weird to call it a solo album because i made it sound like a band it just sounds like a band i didn't take any long guitar solos or you know which quite frankly isn't my favorite thing to listen to anyway i, I think guitar players at least for me i, I get bored anyway if it's not a musical scenario I, it's just watching somebody show off is like not as a listener what i want to hear i just want to hear music so i just i wrote kind of from a listener's or a fan's perspective on that stuff and kept it even though i had all these great players there's no hey we're gonna open it up and let tony take a bass solo in there i just made it very much about like let's just make it like rock songs no nothing progressive minded nothing crazy not trying to be out there um just write some solid rock tunes and that's what that album is now, where do you find, where do you get your lyrics from, your lyric writing? Where does, because I always think that's one of the hardest things, because, you know, you sit there and go, do you make it rhyme? Do you do this? I mean, where did you find for this album the lyrics? Where did you find the song ideas from? That stuff was all about, uh, just kind of about self-improvement, and uh, I guess, you know, I, I'm trying to think when now. I guess about four years ago, because I, I just kind of started on, like, all right, I don't know if I'm like living the life the way I want to be living. You know, I became a dad, and you get into this, this self analyzing all these things about yourself that you want to improve and uh, and struggling with that. And so that's pretty much what that album is about. It's just all those uh, the struggles and the different perspectives on that stuff. 
Now, the band's called Joel Hookster's 13, and you had an album, 13 Acoustic Songs. What's with the 13? Is there a, is there a theme there, or how did you come up with the name Joel? Again, it's, but people also, that's just Twitter, at Joel Hookster 13. Um, how did you come up with the name 13? What made you choose that? Yeah, just a lucky number. Nothing really. I mean, I was born on the 13th and married on the 13th, and it's just always been a, a lucky number of sorts for me, it seems, in life. So nothing really too deep. <laughs> now, with, with the album, how did you figure your tracks, the order? Was it on timing, or was it something that you wanted to weave a story, or was it just you thought these tracks would go good together? Yeah, I mean, I ended up with, I think I recorded... 13 tracks but then two of them became bonus tracks so there was 11 on the album and two released as bonus tracks so there were 13 songs as well <laughs> just to stick with the theme but um you mean in terms of what ones went together on the album yeah like they it were... was pretty varied you know and i i, I i'm a guy that likes i mean I just like different. Yeah, I, I was always into like Zeppelin where there'd be three or four different styles represented on an album. And um, I'm not sure when it became cool to have every song sound the same. Uh, that kind of drives me nuts, though. When you listen to a band nowadays and you've listened to two songs and you've heard that band, anything that they're going to do. Uh, so I, I made it. The songs are pretty varied. It went from... You know, with the heaviest song, I made a bonus track because it was pretty, you know, pretty heavy, this song, Killer Be Killed. And then another one of the bonus tracks was kind of almost blues-based. And so I just tried to focus the sound, pick the 11 that were the most cohesive, and I could find a flow for and that fit together um, the best. Because it was it was definitely varied. Now, are you going to, you said you, you would like to come with another solo album. Were you going a different direction over with Joel Hooks for 13? Were you going a different direction for that or will you stay with what you started or, or do you have any idea? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I'll see where I'm at when and if that time comes, you know. I mean, for now, you know, Whitesnake is, is working on writing and recording right now. So that's kind of out there in terms of me doing writing and recording. And uh, I should be working on an album next year with Michael Sweet. Uh, so I, I have, I have stuff happening in that department and also just, uh, collaborated on a track with Vinnie Apice for him and Carmine, his brother are doing an album together. And, uh, so yeah, I still get my, my, uh, rocks off in terms of, um, working on the recording stuff right now without that. So we'll see. I, I'd like to work something out with Frontiers, and a lot of it just comes down to wanting Russell Allen to sing on it again, because Russell's very busy with Symphony X and Adrenaline Mob, and um, I just, Russ is a great friend of mine, and he's great to help me out with it. I just need to find the right window for him in terms of his career to be able to do it, too. Now, how did you end up playing with Cher? And I know you were recently on TV, I believe. How did that come about? Because it's, it's like, I mean, she's an icon. I mean, you know, it's you, everyone loves Cher. I mean, as a kid, you know, we've seen her. I mean, I'm I'm 53, so I've seen her go from the Sunny and Cher show to different things. How did that happen? Yeah, so well, I guess Dave. I basically filled in for Dave Barry, our guitar player, he's an amazing player. Uh, and I think I was just recommended to him. I think by Justin Derrico at The Voice, uh, who's also Pink's guitar player. Justin's been a friend for a while and an amazing guitar player uh so i think he just maybe had recommended when dave needed to sub out he's also playing on the voice dave is uh the second guitarist on the voice and so he he knew he was going to need a sub for at least one run of these mini residencies that Cher is doing this year so 
anyway, I think it was that, and maybe their music director at The Voice, Paul Markovich, I think also said I would do a good job, and uh, Mark Shulman, Pink's, uh, Pink and, and Cher's drummer, I think all those people kind of told Dave, yeah, he would do a good job, so it's through getting that reputation of learning these sets, I think with Mark, I had done Foreigner with him when I filled in for Mick. So people get to know you as the guy who can learn a set and come in and play it down and, and do a good job that they can rely on that you're, you know, you're not saying, oh, I'm going to need a couple weeks of rehearsals with you guys, you know, but you need someone who's going to do the work at home and come in and play the stuff down. And it's amazing how many people are not willing to do that. They, they talk about getting somewhere in the music business and then they don't want to shed to the point of insanity at home. You have to. That, that's where you get ahead. If you go in, it doesn't matter when you're subbing and share anything else I can do on guitar. You know, it doesn't. I can't go in there and talk about me playing with White Snake or playing a solo with White Snake. It only matters how I do at that gig when I go in. So you have to obsess on that and, and practice that stuff to the point where you know it like the back of your hand and go in and play it down and, and keep the machine rolling. You know, these acts are about so much more than a guitar player, especially something like the share show. I mean, that's more about wardrobe changes than it is about my guitar playing, you know, uh, although the, the guitar is surprisingly difficult to get down for that gig. I mean, there, it's really varied. You're playing four or five decades worth of material. So your vibe changes from sixties uh, folk pop kind of vibe to dance stuff to rock and stuff. And, um, you need to cover a, a lot of different styles in there. Uh, so I just prepped as, as hard as I could, and there's more to it, I think, that people realize. Some of the stuff is set to choreography, so there's you know, a couple songs in particular that don't repeat themselves for minutes at a time. You know, it almost feels like you're playing a progressive song. You're know? like, geez, this is a lot of work. Uh, but again, it, it, I think the, the reputation as being a guy who could learn a set and come in and play it down kind of got me that. And I'm grateful for the opportunity this year with White's doing more studio work and focusing less on the live thing uh it was a great fit and i ended up and ended up getting a couple more runs dave needed me for um you know the next one here in las vegas and then in washington dc so uh, it ended up be, being quite a bit of my year now are you do you ever have downtime i mean it seems like you're always working is there ever a downtime and what do you do in your downtime and do you actually do you listen to music or or what do you think of the way the music has changed uh, downtime down exists. It just isn't as much as I would like this year. Sometimes I'm like, I feel like I'm constantly prepping for something this year. It's, it's, it's really hard when you're playing con constantly playing different sets. Like the Cabo gig you mentioned was 51 songs. And right now I'm about to leave for rock and roll fantasy camp tomorrow morning. And that was a whole lot of songs too. And then after that, I'm doing a clinic tour in Brazil and a concert with the band down there. That's another 15 songs. So it's, it's a lot of like me late at night, staying up and working on sets, memorizing it, getting it together. Uh, so it, downtime is no way. Am I listening to music to be totally honest? I mean, cause I do that for hours a day for my job. So um, and I enjoy it and everything, don't get me wrong, but once I'm done prepping, the last thing I want to do is clutter my brain with more music. Right. <laughs> uh, so for me, it's kind of movies and sports. That's I'm a, I'm a very just normal guy with that kind of stuff in terms of my downtime. I, I like uh, I like the Chicago teams. I grew up with them, so the Cubs and, and the Bulls are, are big with me, and um and then movies are a big thing. I, I'll, I'm one of those guys, if I find a good movie, I'll watch it over and over and over. So um, rather than just watch a new movie just to watch a new one. So 
if there's a, g- a good movie that or a great movie, I'll I'll just throw it on and watch that to zone out. Where is the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp at? Is that the one in L.A. that ends up doing live at the Whiskey, or is it somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one in L.A. Now that's that must be very cool because you're you're these people want to be musicians and they meet musicians. Must have you done it before? Uh, I'm a good fit for it. I've done it before. I did it earlier this year. Uh, I think that 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 goes back to me having that teaching experience back in Chicago and understanding how to approach people with, um, you know, helping them. I mean, it's funny how many people like, uh, rock guys or guys who have careers built as performers. I'm trying to avoid using the term rock star. Uh, uh, I'm not really a big, you know, we're just musicians, but it's so many guys like that don't understand how to, how to teach people. I think me having a background, um, really helps it helps me be able to make it about them and not about me showing off on, on guitar and saying, you know, eventually you should learn to do this. And right. <laughs> playing, uh, you know, the thing like the slicks I know. There's a lot of guys who teach like that, which isn't teaching. That's just showing off for people and performing for people. You know, your your objective is to help people and um, make their experience valuable. So, I mean, I enjoy it. That's awesome, man. You know, I'm glad we got a chance to talk. You know, I, I, I like your work and um, I just, you know, Guitars. I always wish I could play guitar, and I can't. So uh, your website is joelhoekstra.com. And people, that's J-O-E-L-H-O-E-K-S-T-R-A.com. And your Twitter is at joelhoekstra13. And you're pretty active on Twitter, aren't you? Yeah. I, I mean, I Facebook and Twitter, for me, I try and get back to everybody still to date. I've been able to keep doing that, which is, is good. Uh, <laughs> it's... You know, for me, I just want to let people know that I appreciate it. And I think that that goes a long way with people just showing that you still you appreciate the opportunity to play for them. You're not above them. You're sharing the experience. They're supporting you. So it's like I never want to forget that. So, um, so people check. To I try to... You're good. That's good, though. You, you're good. And that's good. You got your fans. Uh, you're good to your fans. And that, that that's very important, especially now with social media, because the fans are more reachable, which is great if you do come back to them they're like wow this guy's really cool yeah i think it's for me it's a positive thing i i again you can approach all these things in life with negatives and positives you know i mean it's the social media thing has led to definitely the you know the people that want to get on there and say something negative and those those are people with their own trips and um you know, but I try to respect anybody's opinion and whatever. It's it, at the end of the day, you try and let it roll off because it, it's you. You try and clear out all the cloudiness of that, that stuff and the emotion, and just look at it like, uh, you know, what's what's supporting what you're able to do for a living. And the bottom line is, the majority of the people on there, that's that's what they're they're trying they're trying to help you. They're trying to help you do what you want to do for a living. So it's something you want to be grateful for. I think. I want to thank you again. So people, go follow. Go follow him on Twitter, Joel Hoekstra13. Follow me on Twitter. It's at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk. Go to his website, joelhoekstra.com. You can go to coopertalk.net. I have over 615 or 18 episodes up there. You can also email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And don't forget Instagram. I'm coopertalk1. And I promote my show there. And I also I post a lot of pictures of food. Because as you know, I had that health problem five years ago. So when I got out of the hospital after five days, I had to rework my diet so, so my book you can go to stopthesalt.com and it's 120 low sodium recipes they're easy to make no pictures to intimidate you you can get it at amazon.com but if you get it from stopthesalt.com i'll sign it for you 
and I'll make more money. So anyway, people, follow Joel on Twitter. Follow me at CooperTalk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only hit, as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.